Hi, and welcome to the DMBA podcast, where we share business confidence for designers. In this special interview, I talked to Pablo, who is a co-founder and CEO of the company behind a really interesting up-and-coming design tool called Pempot. And in this conversation, we basically went into what happened with Pempot after the news broke that Adobe is acquiring Figma. Um, and we basically look at the business perspective of this acquisition and what this means for Pempot and their business model. Pablo, welcome to the show. Hello, Alan. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward. I, I've, I was so looking forward to this uh, conversation for a long time. And I think we'll uncover why in a, in a, in a bit. But me first, for the listeners... Uh, if you could explain a little bit about what is Pempot, because I asked some of our alumni, have you heard of Pempot? And most didn't. So I think let's first shed light on your company. Absolutely. So um, Pempot is a product. The company behind Pempot is Kaleidos. Mm. Uh, we also do another open source product called Taiga, which has been um, uh, you know out there for a, for a number of years. But Pempot specifically is an open source, open standards design and prototyping tool. It's a web-based, uh, real-time collaboration, all the things that you would expect from a design prototyping tool for designers with um, with a twist in that we do welcome developers into the design process. Like it's the tool that developers would have been, I mean, should have been using for a number of years, but were kept out mm-hmm. because somehow other design tools decided that designers should work uh, separately from developers or developers should be working separately from designers. So Pempot is like the first design prototyping tool that really brings them together. And um, yeah, it was born two years ago, like seriously full-time team uh, effort. And uh, we just announced our official launch. So that means we're no longer better, I think. When we first chat, we were better still. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure that happened because that was uh, um, a few weeks ago. And but that's now out of the way. We uh, we did that, um, you know, uh, recently, and we are and now experiencing again one of those very delightful breaking moments where you see all your metrics uh, spike up and to the right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to this, but first. I think somebody listening may say, by the way, it's like Figma is also inviting to developers. You know, it's like it's built for me designing something and handing it over to developers in an easy manner. So like specifically, how does Pempot try to achieve being more friendly to developers? Well, um, I would argue that if you asked developers whether Figma welcomes them, I think they would say, not really. I mean, we are using the tool, but we're not enjoying the tool. But yeah, absolutely, there are developers using Figma. But you uh, said hand over. Mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the issue there. Why should designers hand over, like, specifically a deliverable to developers? Why not the developers should be um, part of the design process, process taking as it is being designed, whatever they need it, with no handover. Our approach here is that design is already the code. The code is already designed. And so you you look mm-hmm. at, an, at a design artifact or an asset or an abstraction, 
and you can inspect the code that it also represents. It is different ways to look at the same object. In that way, designers and developers are actually real-time collaborating together, and you don't see that happening in other tools like Figma. Like developers are waiting for their time, and uh, Pemple is like there's no handoff. Mm-hmm. There's no moment where you say, look, I finished, you come here and I'll explain everything you know and you will um, you know, copy and paste some stuff, export some other things and you can then do your work. Mm-hmm. Pemport is like, you're already here. You've been here from the very beginning. You're inspecting code as we design. We have things like flex layout. So, of course, the design flows the same way as the code because the the code the css code is already informing the design and uh, we have been having this conversation since day one and there's no specific point in time where a designer needs to say now is the time for you to come here and understand so it is about flow it is about team dynamics and that is what will keep making Pempot. Uh, so much different to other design-only or designer-centric tools. Does this feature, the fact that you can work on this together, does it come at expense of any features that designers love? You know, is there a trade-off built into this? From what designers have been telling us, the answer mm-hmm. would be no. Uh, they actually some uh, um, features like flex layout where you have this set of smart rules that make the content flow the way you want. Having uh, top priority in terms of feature requests for the tools for, for a number of years. So I remember when two years ago we launched our alpha mm-hmm. and the community asked to have real time uh, uh, support for right to left support, uh, right, right to left languages, so RTL. So languages like Hebrew, Arabic, or Farsi, or uh, some um, dialects in Hindi. Right. And we were able to ship that in a month, whereas Figma hadn't done that for a number of years. So people sometimes do ask very clearly for things they need, but then they don't get the proper answer from the product. Mm-hmm. That was, for some people, an anecdote. Like, oh, so we ask for stuff and you deliver quickly, thanks to the fact that you're using open standards and the browser technology. So that's great. That's to our our advantage. With Flex Layout, it happened exactly the same. But, of course, it was massively different because everyone wanted Flex Layout. And they have been asking this to other tools for years. And they have been told it's not a priority for us and the reason it was not a priority for all the tools was because they deeply believe that designers should stay isolated in these ivory towers um, with designer only abstractions mm-hmm. but our surveys and our better listing program showed that every i mean not every but 99 percent of designers were actually looking forward to this Because what a designer wants to achieve at the end of the day is for their design to not be interpreted, just be taken as it is. 
by developers. And this definitely speeds up that process. So what's not to love about this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll get to the open standard, open source part in a bit. I would love to dive deeper into it. But first, let me just tell you a story how I even learned about Pempot. So a few months, weeks back, um, you know, Adobe acquired Figma. Um, I mean, it's still in the process, but it's going to happen. So then, you know, I, I saw the whole, the hate around the, the acquisition yeah, and yeah. the backlash of the community. And slowly, like one, three, five days later, news started to like come out about other services. Um, namely like Pempod was mentioned. Um, saw a huge uptick in the signups. Yes. Like people were like, Oh, I don't want to use Figma anymore. I'm going to use something else. So, um, maybe first of all, like how, how did you see this? So how did, did it actually happen this way? Or is it just like misreported? And why do you think there was a huge increase in signups when this happened and when these news broke? Yeah. So that was September 15th. Um, <laughs> we cannot forget that date. Uh, no. company, we were enjoying an offsite event. So uh, the whole company was, uh, in this. Uh, you know, rural um, environment, um, enjoying some workshops and making decisions around what to do next for the next year. And then someone said, "Do you know what just happened?" You know, like with his smartphone in the during lunch, and it was really cheering. Why? Because it was in a very immature market. It's not fragmented at all, really, for design and prototyping. Just. Not even a handful. It's like two or three tools. That's it. Uh, two of them had merged, um, meaning that the company that owns seven percent of the market, Adobe, with Adobe XD, had acquired the tool that owned eighty percent of the market, which was Figma, meaning that um, we got an even less fragmented space. Up and, and therefore, a much bigger opportunity to disrupt that space. People have been told, uh, telling us for years, do not dare to go against uh, Figma. Mm -hmm. It's an uphill battle that you cannot win. And we and we would always say, what are you saying? You know, why is everyone already conceding this battle about? open standards, about free collaboration, about designers and developers, you know, why, why is people... So that was a huge uptick. Yes, it, was, it, it didn't get misrepresented uh, at all. We were growing already very decently, month over month, I have to say. But of course, we cannot compete with a 20 billion deal in mm -hmm. terms of marketing. I mean, that, that was massive. But mo most in interestingly... Other than the numbers, like, you know, and we grew, I don't know, 500,000% in, uh, you know, self-host instances or, you know, we had all, you know, we, we basically had to redo our scales our, for our metrics, right? Because they were now legacy. <laughs> it was not the numbers. It was why people were coming to Pempot, what they were saying. And what these people were saying and many journalists did not get, really did not understand, was they were really emotionally stressed by the, mm -hmm. the news. 
of all the, the possible acquirers for Figma, the most hated one could only be Adobe. And Adobe yeah. had acquired Figma, despite the fact that Figma had declared itself years ago the anti-Adobe design tool. So I would tell journalists that were really happy to interview me at the time, still are, by the time, the, the important thing was the, the acquisition. Nowadays, the important topic is Penpot itself, which is, mm. this is a nice change. So it's, it, this is something like Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars would have hired or recruited Princess Leia. Imagine the rebellion, you know. It, it, that is really a treacherous move, the least expected one. Yeah. But 20 billion is a lot of money, I guess. And we might go into why Adobe did that, um, you know, in, in at some point. But basically, what we saw was people really wanting a way out of that trap, yeah. waiting a, a way out of monopolistic uh, practices, a way out of a toxic brand, a way out of greedy brand, a way out. Um, to make sure that they would have a future-proof ownership of their designs and work. And that hasn't really faded away. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's not one of those cases where people erupt in discontent and then a month or, or a week, even a week later, everyone's cool. You can still feel the rage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... We're still benefiting from that, but of course, we don't want to get people to Pempot just because they hate uh, Adobe or Adobe plus Figma. We want people to come to Pempot because they really value what we're building. Right. But let's maybe, let's go into the reason that Adobe had to buy Figma because I think it will also explain a little bit about maybe the position that Penpot is in, in terms of how Penpot uh, plans to compete with uh, Figma and Adobe now that they are basically in, in the same pot, <laughs> so to say, no pun intended. But <laughs> look, if, if you look at this from a bird's eye perspective, so there's a huge company that has hundreds of billions in market cap, Adobe, right? Yes. That could not compete with Figma, right? They could not figure out how they could actually, uh, you know, uh, disrupt this fast-growing startup, they tried and they copied their product with Adobe XD. They've tried, I don't know, acquiring other companies and so on. They didn't succeed. In the end, they just paid a huge price for acquiring Figma. Uh, so first, I would want to... First, maybe let's go into why you think Adobe decided and had to... I think you even used this word, had to buy Figma. And then on the flip side, what makes you think you will be able to you know, compete with uh, the two yeah, I think the answer lies into the fact that the reason Adobe acquired Figma uh, explains why we are going to be successful. Uh, so they are actually quite intertwined. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain that. Mm. So this is uh, pure, purely uh, speculative on my side, but Adobe could not compete against Figma um, for, for various reasons. One of them is that in design world, winner takes all. It has been like that for a couple of decades, meaning that designers will flock uh, massively to the next cool tool, and then when that's exhausted, they go to the next one. 
it's it's not something I uh, I've seen developers do. Developers, uh, I think, do enjoy a much more diverse set of tools. That's my background in physics mm-hmm. and computer science, and I've been enjoying a number of options for a number of uh, tools in my kit. But for some reason, in design space, that is that doesn't happen. So you typically have like a massive leader in a category and then fades away and then someone replaces that. So probably Adobe was very well aware, aware of that, saying we know how this works. We know how the psychology of designers work and the business. So we we cannot overtake Figma at this point. You know, we are we are the past. We cannot be the future. Mm-hmm. So... Um, of course, I, I would read uh, people saying posts saying that only Figma and Pebble were actually innovating at a fast pace uh, these days. That was well before the acquisition happened. Uh, people in the know would say Adobe XD is not actually innovating. They are, stuck, you know, so they are slow. And Adobe has a ton of money, and probably they have a super big team. Um, mm-hmm. Despite that, they would not innovating. Only Figma and Pimple would, would be doing that, even for a better product. Uh, for Pimple, people would say that. So I guess they would have some operational challenges there also. And then I think the main reason here for Adobe to be excited about acquiring Figma was something that Figma promised. Uh, what did Figma promise in exchange for $20 billion? My suspicion is that Figma promised the whole developer world. Not the design world. Not the designer's world, but the developer's world, which Adobe hasn't ever had a chance to get into. And uh, it's at least 10 times as big as designers. Now, the audience is, is much bigger. So I can picture that uh, negotiation you know, room uh, with uh, people at Figma saying, I can give you something you will never have, which is 10 times what you would ever you know, uh, dream having, which is developers. Now, every developer right now listening to this would say, but that's bullshit because Figma doesn't own developers. Mm-hmm. That's actually something we commented at the beginning. Like, yeah. Figma does not uh, excite developers. Who cares? Uh, you're promising stuff. <laughs> you might not be able to deliver that. But that's probably what is behind $20 billion. A, a decade-long strategy to win over the hearts of developers. Because, to be honest the rate at which Figma could continue to grow when you have 80% of designers is negligible. I mean, you can you can build on top of that in terms of business, like more revenue streams, more products. And I'm sure Adobe would like, would, would could teach uh, one or two things, you know, to uh, Figma and how to expand for the same audience, um, you know, more revenue streams for a suite. But in terms of the, how many designers are using your product, I think Figma could not continue to grow uh, very much unless they untapped the developer audience, but really untapped the developer audience. So Penpot comes from a very, very different approach, which is designers and developers should work together from the very beginning. 
Pemper is a design and prototyping tool, first and foremost, for designers, but is already welcoming onboarding developers into the design process in a, in a way that's quite neat. Mm-hmm. Because it's not obvious at the, at, you know, at first sight how much a developer is going to enjoy or benefit from that. They will go there to take what they need at first and just will be, you know, like pinging and, and, and that. But we are already seeing those teams more tightly coupled within Pempot. Like the developer it, it keeps staying more and more time there because it's also a nice productive or productivity tool for them. It speaks its language, their language, like they can inspect code, they can, it's not um, trying to disrespect them in terms of the vocabulary used, like the mm-hmm. abstractions, the, the user experience, the whole onboarding process is, is much um, fine by them, I guess. Yeah. And so we don't need to pivot as a design prototyping tool to make sure developers really enjoy the experience. And of course, developers do love open source and do love how to hack into the tool, right. integrate that tool into the, the DevOps, GitOps, etc. So at the end of the day, the question that people might want to ask themselves, including you, Alan, is who is going to win over the developers' hearts for the next couple of years? Yeah, that's so interesting because it's so like unintuitive you're designing a design tool but in order to win it almost seems like i need to win uh developers and what i like about your approach is because you're open source you kind of need to win over developers because they will help you also build the next version and the next and the next version of the tool right well uh there are various reasons why we need to do that one that people might be considering is of course that allows you to have more contributions, more innovation distributed across the globe. Like you, 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 you really uh, in open source, you have to be very generous. You need to be generous. You need to go into into the altruistic game theory pattern. Otherwise, you're you're fake, right? But in return, you get so much tailwind. Um, people really adding, contributing, whether it's translation or actual core code, you 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 can see the excitement of people contributing uh, to the mm. product. But there's also a more strategic move for us there, because what we want is to make sure that designers really get much power much more power and agency when they are working and where they're building software or whatever they're building. And this is something that I've called the hidden agenda at some Mm -hmm. point. Our hidden agenda is how to make sure designers only win when developers enjoy the design process. Because the risk there is for developers to take over whatever they are offered. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we always do. We are um, massive. We are, you know, like in numbers, we outnumber 
every other audience. And we have enjoyed that exclusive privilege of just just overruling, taking over any space that we, 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 we are offered. Uh, we know how to automate. We know how to scale up. We know how to engineer everything. So the tricky part here for us is we're going to make sure developers are welcome to the design process. And at the same time, those developers are going to, not reluctantly, but actually uh, willingly, give away part of the power that they have to designers to balance, to have a, a better balance in terms of power dynamics in teams, within teams. The only way you can hope to achieve that, and I hope people really are following me here, is for developers to enjoy the design process, to really enjoy mm -hmm. it, to, to appreciate it, to appreciate the research that goes into it, to appreciate the, the work that goes into it, the, the science, but also the pure creativity. And for them to enjoy, they need to be part of that space, respectfully, but part of that space. As long as developers stay are you know stay away from that are kept at the bay, they are going to make assumptions of that, and they're going mm -hmm. to judge or better put prejudge about that. So I think it's in the, in the designer interest that we make that transition to developers uh, as soon as possible, without of course making developers now the the, the new kings and queens. Of the design process because then that would be so wrong but we are very well aware of that and we're making sure that's not the case uh, how are you making sure that's not the case because the design and prototyping tool is first and foremost something uh, the, the the whole um user journey ux and the the value that you get is basically for designers so that you know developers might get um 20% of value, a very, very high quality one, but it's designers that will get 80%. Uh, Got it. Tool. So I recently read that you raised, what was it, 12 million round? That was in the beginning of February. And I think in total, like uh, Pampod raised 20 million in, uh, in investments. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the question I'm trying to get to is like, okay, so... You're saying that uh, the business model of Penpot is open source. And usually open source companies, you know, uh, either don't get 12 million investments or just they decide to not go through this route. So for me, it's almost like, oh, that's interesting. So this company is trying to do both. So help me understand and with this also listeners, like how are you thinking of um, the business model? Because right now, if I'm not mistaken, I can just use the, the tool for free. You know, it's just there. I can just pick it up. I can just sign up and use it and I don't pay anything for it. So yeah, basically I would like to know about the monetization plan and like, what's the story that the investors are buying into? Absolutely. So frequently asked question number one that we got a few months ago was when are you going to have auto layout? <laughs> and then I'll migrate. And we actually came out with Flex Layout, which is my better, much better. And we are going to release uh, Grid Layout soon. And we will have different layout systems. You know, you pick the one you want. 
But the second frequent asked question that we, we get is, are you going to monetize this? Some people mm -hmm. would ask that question coming from different backgrounds. Like some people will say, I need, I, I care too much now for Penpot. <laughs> Please tell me you have a plan. Um, <laughs> but other people would um, genuinely want to understand the business model, um, mm -hmm. like the monetization strategy, uh, not only from a sustainability point of view, but actually from a business, a successful business point of view. And we've always said the same thing over and over and over. We might rephrase it, we might clarify it, but it's already there from the very beginning. We we come from a, a company. We are a company. We've been a company for 12 years. Kaleidos mm -hmm. was born in 2011. And we have been using technology and our talent to uh, for services and consulting services for 10 years. So we had clients come to us and ask for our talent for a very challenging technological project. Perhaps it was a startup or a big corporation. And we would uh, be very clear about what type of projects we would accept because we are not here to do just whatever. We are here to make sure that we build great technology that has a positive impact in society. So when we transitioned to an open source, and by the way, the company was called Kaleidos Open Source. That's the, the that's the full name of the company. When we transitioned to an open source product company, we ask ourselves the same question. Okay, uh, what's the money we are going to be happy taking, and for what reason? And we what we decided is we'll have an open source business model. That means that in our case, that means that power users. Power users are, you know, highly active users. Whether they are designers or developers, are really um, they have a, a, a very intense uh, use usage of the tool. We'll always have the tool open source. Uh, everything's going to be open source and it's going to be free, mm -hmm. regardless of you picking the SaaS that we have. We have a cloud deployment that you can go sign up, and that's it. Or you self-host it. You know, we don't care. We, You can self-host Penpot. You can go to our SaaS. That's going to be free forever. Free forever and open source. So the code will be available as it is right now under a Mozilla public license 2.0 for those of you that uh, are into licensing. So that's an MPL 2.0. Um, now, at some point in the next uh, couple of years, we will figure out exactly what enterprises want from their Pimpod um, workspace. Things that power users don't care about, but companies really need to have. Mm. There would be uh, things like compliance, uh, reporting, insights, uh, policy application. Like, yeah, you can do anything. You can create any project. You can do, you can invite anyone, except the company doesn't allow you to do that. And that you will have to pay for. To be able right. to control the features or the dynamics of the team, you will have to pay for. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Pemport will have two-factor to, to authentication for signups. You can set that up. But is, if as a company you really want that to be the only way to sign up or log in, you have to pay. Right. So 
we call this model a uh, tax the controller model. And basically what it's trying to do is to make sure that people that can contribute with time, content, or code, the type of people that would do that, even if you particularly are not doing it, but if you belong to that audience, you belong to the power user audience, and you get everything open source, everything free. But if you are a manager or a executive or a corporation, like an abstract corporation that needs something extra and cannot contribute with anything else than money, then you pay. And that should be transparent, completely transparent, not in terms of being clear. Of course, everything will be clear as, as everything, as, as always for us, but also self-host and uh, SaaS. You will pay the same or mostly the same, whether you go for the enterprise edition of PenPod, self-host, the enterprise edition on our cloud. And there has been, uh, we've been very clear about this, what the power user mean and with the enterprise user mean. And uh, so far, it looks like it's the simplest, most um, valid, open core business model that we can think of. Nice. And who, who is maybe an analogous example or analogous, let's say, oh, there are many. role model? Is it like Red Hat from Linux or... Not exactly. Red Hat has a different uh, approach. I actually was having a chat with a friend of mine, uh, Pilar Bravo. Uh, she's in Madrid and uh, Red Hat Iberia. And they have a different model because it's more like if you're a company, you have to abide by this other license. And it's, it's different. It's not, it's the whole product. You need to pay for the whole product. Right. Um, so it's not exactly the same. Now, I think. The closest would be tools like, uh, I guess, GitLab. Uh, that would be a, a fine example where they very um, cleverly, I guess, identified the benefits of specific features for those type of different buyer type personas. So they don't really care much about the organization type or the size of the organization. They only care about who has the budget to ask for which specific features that bring value. And uh, I, I think they made some mistakes along the way, but overall, they were successful in very clearly identifying which bucket, is it the open source or the enterprise, uh, do features come to, right? For us, it's we have a very simple flow of questions. If you get three no's to a, to three you know consecutive questions, most likely it'll go into open source. But if you know something like that, it's 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 very simple. And it's one rule that follows: something that was open source at some point stays open source forever. Yeah. I mean, what, what, so to play the devil's advocate, but also maybe more like to play the role of a business designer here is like, if I would be putting this together, I would want to know, okay, so instead of selling 1 million licenses, right? You said before Figma has 1 million licenses and each of them costs this and this, this and this basically then adds up to their monthly revenue. So I'm essentially 
losing in a way in business sense like 90% of users that would pay for it but I'm only focusing on the 10% which is the enterprise I don't know cases so have you yeah have you done any math in terms of like okay if we just go with enterprises this is still enough to kind of be a sustainable business model that could disrupt Figma and in that way we can also sustain over a longer period of time and kind of be here to provide the value to our audiences designers and and developers yeah yeah as i said my background is in physics (laughs) you've done the numbers numbers. (laughs) they're actually quite trivial to do the the key idea behind how to approach this is a very simple um value created value captured ratio Mm -hmm. Typically, for proprietary software, you create value. Creating value is making sure your your users have some obvious gain, right, by using your software. And you can put a number to that. You can say that's equivalent to I don't know a thousand dollars per year. Like, if you're a designer and using a tool, you could you can say thanks to this tool, I was able to earn, you know, to get a thousand dollars. How much would you be willing to pay for that software? That's a, that's that's the value capture. The value creation is a thousand. The value capture is how much? A hundred? Five hundred? Nine hundred? Ten thousand? Of course, ten thousand doesn't make sense, but up to a thousand that you're getting out, how much? And typically, what studies reveal is that people are okay paying twenty up to twenty percent of the value created. So in that case, you would be fine paying two hundred dollars per year for a tool that gives you a thousand in return right so that's a profit of 800 um so proprietary software follows that trend they need to create so much value for so many people in order to then capture up to 20 percent. i mean of course you can do with less than that uh, cloud services to try to be super optimized and perhaps they are fine if you only capture 10 percent uh, at the beginning, they'll be happy with 5% and they go up in fees and pricing changes. Mm-hmm. I think people can picture that. But basically, you have a sales team that makes sure that for everyone out there, uh, you you try and capture that 20%. Right. But open source is is different. The approach is different. You need your most of the people are not going to pay you anything anytime, like mm-hmm. ever. So typically the ratio here is that you can only capture one percent or even less than that, 0.5 percent of the value you mm-hmm. create on average per user. So if you want to have any decent business metrics with that, uh, <laughs> really silly conversion rates in terms of capture. You need to have a huge value creation pipeline. Right. And for an for an open source product to achieve that, you need to be really relevant, basically. You need to really be a category leader. Mm-hmm. Because you are being extremely generous. Extremely generous. You're giving away so much. That the only way you can hope to get um, something in return, even with that tiny ratio I just mentioned, like 1%, let's just go for 1%, you're going to need that 100 to be 
massive, like worldwide footprint. Mm. So not every open source product can it or belongs to the category of being massive. Yeah, there's no. some tools that are just going to be niche forever. Mm. So I mean, if your competitor is also niche, then you can sort of say, okay, but it's the same. The, 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 their worldwide footprint is my worldwide footprint. Does but does Penpot belong to the worldwide footprint type of product? I would argue it does. Mm-hmm. I would argue that Penpot is meant for software teams, cross-functional teams, designers, developers, product managers, stakeholders, marketing people, content creators. So I I would argue that we have the potential to be so big that whenever we ask for that 0.5 or 1% value capture in fees, mm-hmm. that is still a very exciting business for us. Mm. And that is why we are not at all concerned about pricing right now because we have to prove so much before we even ask uh, for money. We have to make sure that we have that value creation really up and to the right. Mm. I'm glad you found VCs that understand this because it's a, it's a very powerful new paradigm. Um, that was the that... toughest. That was the toughest move. We we are open source and we are uh, the tool is quite challenging to develop so that attract attracts attention. Uh, it's also about designing prototypes. It's it's for the, as a developer tool. Um, open source design, you know, what is that? That's a, a nice blend. So you could imagine how many venture capital firms would knock on the door. It would be <laughs> so distracting. I really had tons of meetings, and most of them, most of them would not get this. They would be initially excited about the prospects of having in their portfolio such a nice poster child, I guess. But then when you got into the the business uh, model, the fact that they had to wait so long, they would start asking questions that would only make sense for proprietary SaaS, really, for closed-source right. software. And we'd say, you're not getting it. We need to be patient. We need to build this. We need to prove a ton of stuff before we ask for money. Are you in or not? with this long-term strategy and most of them would say they wouldn't ever say no but they would say not yet right yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it's the usual uh come back in a year with new metrics and let's talk again yeah i'd say okay yeah but uh and then i would say you come back in a year or so and prove your worth Mm, too mm. so yeah i think we are really happy to have decibel uh they're on open source vc um with, you can look at their portfolio and you'd see that, I don't know, 90% of their companies are open source. And when I would ask uh, some other founders their experience with them, they would say, don't look elsewhere. <laughs> this, this, these people really get, get it. And so far, yeah, they are uh, tremendous help and support. Last question, Pablo. Where can our designers uh, download the app and uh, try it out? Well, you just go to Pempot dot app 
And the easiest way is you just create a SaaS um, account. You can invite your team. You do the onboarding. But if you are you want to you are you know about Docker, you can self-host it. So you can very simply just one click. So Docker pull and that's it. Docker run. And also there are some other options for your on-premise as a service with our friends at uh, Elestio. So that Elest.io. If you want to have your own uh, SaaS model, but like private. So no need to download. Although there is a community contribution that encapsulated Penpot as a desktop app for all operating systems. So if you look for desktop app and Penpot, you can also get the native experience. Although that is not really meant for teams, I guess. That's more for like a solo player, which is which is fine. Um, but yeah, penpot.app and then please go to community.penpot.app and join there because there's a really vibrant community uh, discussing everything around design and code, collaboration, open source, open standards. It's really fun to uh, to be there. Thank you very much, Pablo. That was very, very intriguing, I think, uh, inspiring to all of us. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. That was great. If you enjoyed this conversation, you may also enjoy joining the MBA program where we go even deeper into business topics. Um, and the upcoming one is starting very soon. We're actually starting on April 17th and applications are open uh, right now at this moment. So if you head over to d.mba slash apply or d.mba slash apply minus now, you'll have a chance to get your spot in the upcoming program. That's all for this episode. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.